Amen. If you are wondering what happened to our choir chairs, it's not like we had to sell them just to pay the bills. Um, I don't think. But we're having uh, our, our kids' choir will be singing tonight. And kids, you know, when they do their thing, they need a lot of running room. And so they had some rehearsals earlier this week, and they moved all that out of the way, um, except for that one. But we're just leaving that in place. So if you can, if you can be with us tonight at 6, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got some folks in the church that will be making their acting debut, as I understand it. So that'll be great. But we love kids at Sharon Heights, and, and we want to see them use their gifts to serve Jesus, and we want to see them excited about church. Now, one of the coolest things, I think, in life is if you ever have the experience to hear a little kid pray, because little kids, they're, they're just so raw and honest when they pray, and you hear them pray, and it's no wonder that Jesus taught us that you have to become like a little child to enter in the kingdom of heaven. When I first started pastoring, Amy and I taught a little kid Sunday school class, and every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, this little boy in our class named Jesse, he would always want to pray for the killer whales. I don't know why, but we did. Somewhere in the ocean right now, there is a pot of orcas that are unusually blessed by the Lord <laughs> because we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I heard about one little kid who... After, after kind of a bad day, he got down by his bed one night and he put his little hands together and he bowed his little head and said, Jesus, I promise I will never say those words again until the next time I go to the dentist. Uh, I, can, I can feel his pain. But for a lot of us as little kids, uh, for many of us, probably the first prayer we learn to pray as little kids, it goes like this, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for the food. Now, that's really good theology, even if it's not great poetry. But I wonder how many times we really do struggle to believe that God is good. You grow up and life gets a little bit more complicated than it does when you're five or six years old. And sometimes you start to wonder, is God really being good to me? Is God good when I'm not? Is God good when life's not good? Is God always doing good? What would happen if God somehow turned bad? You see, some of you today, I'm sure, are in a situation in life where, just to be honest, you feel like God is sinning against you. Now, you never say it that way. And you know that that really may be impossible. But deep down, you feel like, because of circumstances you're in, that God is cheating you, God is holding out on you, and God is not being good to you. You might even be in a situation right now in life where it's easier to blame God for the bad decisions you're making than it is to trust Him to help you do the right thing. Today, as we continue looking at some explicit statements in the Bible where we learn about some things God simply can't do, today we are going to look in James chapter 1 and we are going to be taught this very, very essential, fundamental idea of our scriptural understanding of God that God can't sin. God cannot sin. And we're going to be reminded of one of the most useful and important truths in all of the world. And that is this, that God can never do wrong. And if God can never do wrong, then He can never do you wrong. So I want to show you that today in James chapter number 1 and verse number 12. If you have your Bible, I'm going to like for you to stand if you're able and if you're willing. If you don't have a Bible with you, stand with us and read the words on the screen. Um, and I'm going to let our sound folks know. These monitors have a lot more to, to bounce off of than normal, so we may be blowing everybody out up there. I'm not sure. Um, I'm fine if they are, so just follow your heart. It'll be fine. James 1, 12. 
The Bible says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now notice this. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. You can be seated. And I believe that God is going to speak to us today from His word. Now, the book of James is a book that is written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. In fact, in verse number 1, James says in James 1.1 that he's writing to the saints, the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion. And that phrase, in the dispersion, that's a very Jewish way of writing to a very Jewish audience from a very Jewish writer. And it harkens back to the period of the Babylonian captivity when the people of Israel were exiled away from their homes for 70 years. James looks at these people and the suffering that they are undergoing for the name of Jesus and he sees a new kind of exile. He sees people that are being hunted down for their faith in Jesus. He sees people that are away from home. He sees people that may be losing their homes, losing their families, losing their jobs. Some may be even close to losing their lives for the name of Jesus. For these people that James is writing to in James 1, following Jesus is very, very hard. And honestly, that's tough for us to relate to this morning. Because we live in a culture where it's very, very easy to follow Jesus for the most part. It doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't mean we're going to lose anything. It's easy to say that you belong to the Lord Jesus. And just so you know, for some of you, that may be the greatest threat to your spiritual well-being right now. Not that it's hard to follow Him, but it's very, very easy for you to follow Him. And if following Jesus costs us nothing, if following Jesus never hurts us, if following Jesus is never difficult, and we really don't take it seriously... It would be good for some of you just to ask yourself this morning, if you can't really follow Him when it's easy, what makes you think you're going to follow Him when it's really hard? So these people are experiencing pain because of their relationship with Jesus. We think you follow Jesus and life gets easy. These people are hurting specifically because they are connected to Jesus. That's the problem on the front end. But James very wisely detects a problem underneath that. He realizes that people can be deceived they can be confused, and they can think because of the circumstances they are in that God Himself is doing them wrong. Or at a minimum, that God has put them in a situation where they have no choice but to do wrong just to save their own skin. They think that somehow, maybe, God is sinning against them or forcing them to sin. So James gives just a very clear very straightforward statement when he says God cannot be tempted to do evil. And he will never tempt anyone to do evil. Now we may feel like their dilemma in James chapter 1 is a bit of a stretch. But let's be honest. And let's admit that when we go through difficult seasons of life, sometimes it makes God look really bad and sin look really good. Just imagine sitting by the bedside of an aging spouse or an ailing parent. And seeing physical decline and mental decline, wondering, God, why does it have to be this way? Is this really best? 
Imagine what it's like when you work a job for year in and year out that is not satisfying, it is not fulfilling, it's not going well, and it is not paying well, and you feel like, God, you're holding out the best in life from me. Imagine what it's like, some of you know, to have a child, maybe that's already grown, that causes you a lot of anguish and a lot of difficulty. And you feel like God is taking that dream of a perfect family from you. It's easy to feel like God has sinned against you. So we today need to absorb the medicine that James gives us. When he says, God cannot sin. And he cannot, because of that, cause you to sin. What James will do here is he'll cause us to take a hard look at our circumstances. An honest look at our own hearts. And a fresh look at God as we think about the idea that God can't sin. And James kind of encapsulates this idea by giving us two really broad statements that help clarify our thinking about our God who cannot sin. And the first one is this. God can't sin, but you can. That's the point of James 1, 12 through 15. Now James begins there in verse number 12 by calling people out of their temporary pain and offering them an eternal perspective on their suffering. He says when you endure the trials and the suffering of this life faithfully by trusting in God, God's purpose is ultimately, eternally, to give you a crown of life. You see the importance of that verse? He says right out of the gate to us and to them that God's purpose for us in life is to be victorious. That God wants us to reign as conquerors. God wants us to be free from sin and temptation. God wants you to enjoy victory. And folks, that is good news. But it's news that a lot of times doesn't dawn on us as believers. Sometimes we think that God has all these rules that we never can follow. And He gives us these rules just to mess with us so that He can beat us on the head when we fail. Folks, that is not our God. Our God is a God who wants us to be victorious. He is pulling for us. And on my better day as a believer, on my better days as believers, which really are few and far between, I, there, there's something in me that says, this is the life that I want. There's something in me that says, I want to get past sin. I want to live a life that honors God. I want to know Him and make Him known and glorify Him and enjoy Him. And you know what that's like too. When you have five good minutes of holiness every year. And... What James is saying to you is this. James is saying that there's nobody in the universe that wants that more for you than God. God wants that for you more than you want it for yourself. Nobody has more invested in your spiritual eternal well-being than God himself. So friends, know right out of the gate that the narrative arc of Scripture, as it defines God's purpose for us, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, from beginning to end, the Bible teaches us that God wants us to know Him. He wants us to bring honor to Him. He wants us to enjoy knowing Him and glorify Him and enjoy bringing glory to Him. That's God's purpose for us. So, James says God is for our good. That's important. You log that deep in your soul. God is for your eternal good, which means God is not going to tempt you to sin. Because in his character, he simply cannot sin. He's never enticing you to sin. And he's never himself enticed to sin. God is, in his nature, morally, ethically, spiritually perfect. So that he himself is never drawn away into sin. In fact, God is so perfect that he himself is the standard of perfection. And you can't talk about sin unless you talk about how it is contrary to who God is. Or opposed to what God wants. 
So today, James teaches us that God is not enticed by sin. He's not interested in sin. He's not intrigued by sin like we are. God's bored with sin. God is repulsed by sin. God is opposed to sin, and sin by its nature is opposed to Him. So I thought this week, maybe to help us understand this a little bit more clearly, it would help us to think about sin, but specific sin in a specific person's life. And I'm sure most of you today know the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, If you don't, it's not great. It's in 2 Samuel. Uh, That's not one you want to read your kids before bedtime, you know. But the long story short is that David, this great man of faith, has a terrible season of weakness where he lusts after a woman he's not married to. He has an affair with her. He gets her pregnant. Then he eventually kills her husband to cover up that pregnancy. And y'all, I know when you come to church, you're not supposed to judge people for their sin. But dude, that's bad. I mean, that's real bad. But thankfully, God worked in David's life and brought him to repentance. And we have the prayer of David's repentance in Psalm chapter number 51. So Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, David prays and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now notice how he talks about his sin. He says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In those verses, David uses three different terms to talk about the same problem, his sin. The first is the word transgression. The word transgression means to break a law. It means to cross over a boundary. It means God says, you go this far and no further, and we've all said. And that's what David had done. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, 4, that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is breaking and violating the law of God. Now, God's law is an extension of His will. It's a reflection of His nature. And if that's what sin is, God in His will cannot be contrary to His own will. And God in His nature cannot be contrary to His own nature. But back in Psalm 51, David also used the word iniquity to talk about sin. And the word iniquity refers to this kind of internal bent that we have that draws us towards sin and away from God. There's nothing in God's nature that is drawn away from God's nature. But then he also uses the word sin. The word sin means to essentially aim at a target and to fall short of it. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we define sin biblically as falling short of God's standards and falling short of God's glory, God has never fallen short of His own standards. God has never fallen short of His own glory. It is not possible for God to sin because God cannot fail to be God. He cannot cease to exist. He cannot retire. He cannot quit being God. He cannot and would not change his nature because his nature is perfect. Which means this. It means that if somehow God were able to sin, that God would be willing to go against his own will. That he would make a choice from his will to contradict his will. That he would act in his nature to do things that were against his nature. And if that were to happen, then the universe would disappear in a poof of inconsistency. It is a logical and theological contradiction to say that God is capable of sin. But many of us live as if somehow that contradiction is true. You ever felt like, let's run through the Ten Commandments, you ever felt like God is cheating on you? Not that He's committing adultery on you like that, but maybe He ain't loving you the way you deserve to be loved. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like God's lied to you? The Bible takes a pretty negative opinion on lying, if you didn't know. Have you ever felt like God's lying to you? He's not holding, it, holding up His promises to you? Have you ever felt like God's coveting things you got? God's trying to take everything you got as if He really needed it? Have you ever felt just like God's trying to kill you for some reason? 
for whatever reason, God has decided to pick on you. We live in this tension as if somehow God were capable of sinning against us and hurting us. And that was the problem these people were having in the book of James. And the problem is compounded because these people were put in situations where it made sense for them to sin, to get out of painful circumstances they were in. Right? I know we all love Jesus here today. But if somebody comes with a badge on their chest and a gun on their side and says, don't you go to Sharon Heights Baptist Church, don't you love Jesus? What are you going to do? I know you're going to stand up, stand up for Jesus. But you're going to think about it for a minute, aren't you? Sharon Heights Baptist Church. Uh, no, that's not. That doesn't ring a bell to me, officer. But I'll be happy to help you if I can. That's what these people were literally living through. And so they were in situations where they would feel like it made sense to blaspheme and deny the name of Jesus for their own survival. Or they were in situations where they felt like they should lie or curb back the intensity of their faith to protect themselves. And it would be easy for them from that to say, well, God is the one who put me in that situation. If he didn't want me to sin, he shouldn't have put me in that situation where I had no choice but to sin. So James says, no, God, who cannot be tempted with evil, does not tempt you with evil. So James says the problem is not that sin comes down to you from God. The problem is that sin comes from inside of who you are. Now James is going to get pretty hairy here in the way he talks about our sin nature. So I'm just going to go ahead and be up front with you. The picture that James paints of our, of our natural condition apart from Jesus, it's not great. They don't teach this in public schools where they tell you you're all valuable snowflake and you're all basically good. A lot of places they don't teach this in Sunday school. But this is what James shows us here. He says, you are drawn away, tempted when you are lured and enticed by your own desire. God's desire is for your righteousness. Your desire is for pretty much anything else. Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin fully matures, it brings forth death. Of course, we want to do everything that we can to try and justify ourselves and say it's not our fault. And sometimes even God himself may come up in the crosshairs. That happens in our culture. Every day, people justify the most sinful kind of behaviors by saying, this is just who God made me to be. That's what James is saying in this text of Scripture, that we are pathological sinners. There's something broken and wrong inside of us that does not desire God. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. So you can blame circumstances for your sin. You can blame people for your sin, but folks, circumstances in your life and the people in your life, they never put into you anything that's not already there. All they do is draw out of you what's inside of you. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? Jesus taught this in Mark chapter 7. He said, uh, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declares all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things, Jesus says, they come from within. That's what defiles 
a person. Jesus says, the Bible says that sin comes out of us because sin is inside of us. But still our tendency is to manage our sin and to justify our sin and to excuse our sin by saying it's somebody else's fault. And folks, that attitude is as old as the human story itself. You remember what Adam did when God confronted him about his sin? Lord, I admit I blew it. But this woman you gave me, Lord, she's the one you need to talk to. Honey, go ahead and tell God what happened. And I promise you that they were still having that conversation 30 years later. They were arguing about how to load the dishwasher. And she said, well, I guess it's my fault like it was in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? But James is adamant that there's nowhere we can pass the blame to. The problem is inside of us. He says that we are drawn away when we're tempted, we are lured and enticed by our own desire. In fact, the terminology he uses is straight out of the world of fishing. So ladies, I'm sorry. I know that some of y'all hear about fish more at your house than people that work at SeaWorld. I'm sorry, but this is what the Bible teaches. So guys, if you like to fish, or ladies, if you like to fish, you go into Bass Pro Shop and you buy that neon speckled frog looking thing. And you take that lure and you throw it in the water and you drag it across that log where that big monster bass is. And if his stomach is empty enough, and if the water temperature is just right, and the time of day is just right, and if you're moving that just right, and if all the conditions are perfect, that bass will see that lure, and there's something in his nature that bites. James says that's exactly the way sin works in our hearts. There's something in our nature that has a compulsion to go for it. There's something in us that can't help it, that is drawn to it. And so you get that bass, and you fight him, and you reel him into the boat, you take your picture with him, and you bring that picture to church, and you lie to everybody about how big he is. I'm telling y'all, he was 15 pounds. Came at me with a knife, cussing my mama. Why? Because you are a sinner with a compulsion to go after deceit. So we think of our sin as just a mistake or just a failure or something that is really out of our character. James says, no, this is not coming from somewhere outside of you. It's certainly not coming from the God above you. It's coming from your heart. The way we prefer to think is we prefer to think we're just going our way in life and turn around the next thing you know, we're in the deep fryer with the hush puppies. What happened? We don't have any idea how we got here. Friends, the Bible is adamant that we are the problem. So that whatever the specific sins you struggle with, they are an indication of who you really are. If you struggle with your temper and like to blow up on people to get your way, that's because you are a person with a murderous heart who wants to damage people who are made in the image of God. If you are a person who struggles with gossip, of course, I've never met anybody who struggles with it. Most people are pretty good at it. <laughs> if you struggle with gossip and use information to damage people around you and hurt them and tear them down, that is a glimpse into your heart and how you feel about fellow people made in the image of God. If you find yourself lusting after members of the opposite sex or the same sex that you are not married to, then you are the kind of person who wants to consume other people for your own desire. That's who you are. James says the problem is inside of us. And he says, verse 15, that that lure always comes with a hook. 
and that hook always kills. We simply have no right to blame God because he cannot sin. His character is good, even if ours isn't. But James is going to continue to say that his character is always good and never changing. So James has taught us that God can't sin, but we can. But in the next paragraph, he goes a little bit further and he says that God can't change. But you can. God cannot change, but you can change. So James is clearly concerned that this church would be deceived into thinking that God was against them. Do not be deceived, he says in verse number 16. My brothers, do not be wrong in your thinking. God is not causing you to sin. He is not sending temptation in your life. God himself is not sinning against you. He says God is giving you, verse 17, good and perfect gifts. And what a contrast we see right here between the nature of God and our nature. That our nature is sinful. It is self-centered. It is mistaken and foolish and flawed and broken. That our sin by nature causes us to take what is forbidden. But God in the grace and the glory of His nature loves to give what is undeserved. That God loves to pour out good things to people who do not see Him as good. That God loves to bless people who are easily drawn away by their own sinful hearts. He's saying this is the nature of God. Not to sin against you, but to be good to you. To love you and to pursue you. James says we are selfish creatures who are impulsively led away by the pathology in us that leads us towards sin. But God, in response to that, chooses to give us good things. And friend, right here in these verses, this is the scandal of the message of the Bible. That we are sinners who by our nature are drawn after things other than God. But God in His nature is so gracious and so good and so glorious that He loves to give us good gifts. Not because we've earned them and not because we've deserved them, but because He's a good God. And because of that, we have no right to ever say that God has cheated us, that God has sinned against us, or that God has defrauded us because God always and only gives us good and perfect gifts. In fact, the only person in the history of God's world who could ever claim they were mistreated by God is the Lord Jesus at the cross. And God poured out what we deserved in our sin so that He could give us what Christ deserved in His goodness. So that He could give us every good and perfect gift in Christ. So James says, do not be deceived. Think better thoughts about God. He can't sin against you. He gives good things and that will not change. Now I know, that's tough to believe. We know that God gives us good gifts. But sometimes we struggle with the perfect gifts part, don't we? As if God is is blessing us, but we unwrap these blessings and we think, this really ain't what I had in mind. You ever got a weird gift from somebody who you know they meant well, but the execution was a little bit off? I remember when I was a kid, when I was like five or six, in the early 90s, those neon-colored windbreaker suits were popular. Remember those? And so every year for Christmas, for a couple years, my parents, both sets of my grandparents, everybody gets me these bright blue fluorescent, bright yellow, bright green neon windbreaker outfits. And when you've opened like the 20th one of those, it's kind of like, thanks. But evidently all the adults in my life thought I needed to dress like MC Hammer. But we have that same, we have that same perspective on God. That sometimes God is giving us things, but if He really knew what we knew, 
He might try a little bit harder when he gives us good gifts. James says no. He gives good and perfect gifts. Now, we've got to be honest today and admit that this can lead to a big problem in our thinking. That if God really is good to us, and if it's really not God's will for us to sin, and if God doesn't make people sin, then how can there be sin? How can people sin against us? Because people do sin against us. Some of the most difficult things in life occur when other people sin against us. Is that somehow God's good gift to us? If I grew up in an abusive home, if I've had to sort through the the damage of an affair, if corporate greed trickles down to my job and, and my job is shipped off to some town in China I can't pronounce, is that supposed to be good? We need to understand in those times the principle James set forth here, that every gift God gives is a good gift even if he is not himself the cause of sin. And we can read in story after story in Scripture where God does allow us to hurt in ways that ultimately lead to our good. He allowed that for Jesus. People sinned against Jesus. And yet it was the will of God to use the sin of people against Jesus to save people from their sin. That's what the Scriptures teach us. And the alternative reality to that is either a reality where God is not in control of all things, Or a reality where God is not really that good. Friends, I assure you, you don't want to live in either one of those possibilities. But what James would teach us is that we never have the right to excuse our own sinful responses to the sinful behavior of other people. And yet we are masters at that, aren't we? Some of you right now are engaged in behavior that is toxic and dangerous and exceedingly sinful. Because you think that something that happened outside of you justifies you acting on impulses inside of you. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 about this. He says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, Peter says something significant there. When we think about the cross, the primary way we think about the work of cross, the work of the cross is we think of Jesus as our substitute. He says he suffered for you, but Jesus also suffered as an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued doing what? Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, you have been healed. What Peter says in that text is this, that the cross of Jesus allows us to come to life to righteousness so that like Jesus, we can trust the will of God for us no matter where it takes us. Knowing that the same God who worked through the cross of Jesus will also work through our pain To accomplish our good and His glory. That's what Jesus did. And part of being in Christ means that He has given you that same kind of perspective and that same kind of faith. God always and only gives us good things. That's what James says back in James 1.17. He loves good. God is good. He pursues good. And James tells us this will not change. He's talked about God not being able to sin, but now he talks about God being unable to change. A thought that we will consider again in a couple weeks. 
But here he frames it in kind of an odd terminology. He says that God is the father of lights. And with God there is no variation. Or the King James says variableness. The King James says with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And what he's saying is that God is a God who is unchanging. And it could mean the idea of father of lights could be referring to God's moral perfection. A lot of times the Bible will talk about sin in terms of darkness and righteousness in terms of light. But I think James is being pretty literal here that God is the one who put all of the light and light sources in our universe in place. They all stemmed from Him. And that if we really think about and understand our lives, we will understand that we are unstable creatures who are constantly changing. And much of the change that occurs in our lives happens because of our relationship to the light sources in the universe. So what are you talking about, Jesse? Here's what I mean. Every year there's another candle on your birthday cake that says you've gone one more trip around the sun. And the more candles you get on that cake, I promise you, the more changes are taking place in your body. Because you will mature and then you will age. And what James is saying here is that even though we are creatures who are constantly changing, God is the one who's above time. He's the one who made time. He's the one who is beyond time. And that God is not changing. And so, if God is not changing, then God who was doing me good yesterday, and God who was doing me good when He saved me, and God who was doing me good when He sent Jesus to die for me, that God will do me good tomorrow. No matter how unbelievable or confusing the gifts He gives me may be when I unwrap them, I know they come from the heart of a God who is good and who will not change. James says God's goodness will not change. God will never be better. God could never be worse. God is always good. God is only good. He loves good things And he gives good gifts. And I was preparing this sermon this week. And I was writing that sentence. And I was in a big way. And I was writing faster than I was thinking. That happens sometimes. And I about wrote this sentence down this way. I about said that God is only good. He always is good. He loves good things. Gives good gifts. And I thought and wrote it down before I really realized it. I wanted to say he loves good people. And then it dawned on me, that is the exact opposite of what James is saying. That he does not love good people. There are no good people to love. But who does he love? He loves these people whose nature is drawn away from him. Who are taking the bait time and time and time again. Who have been lured out of our sin. And we have been dumped in the devil's live well and mounted on his wall. Those are the people that God loves. Those are the people that God is committed to. Those are the people that God has said, I am going to do good for you. And friend, that is your hope when life does not make sense. That is your hope when we fall into temptation and need forgiveness. When you take the bait and feel the hook in your jaw, this is your hope. That God is always and only good. Friend, God will do things in your life you will never understand. But He will never do you wrong. God will do things in your life that do not make sense, but He will always and only do you good. That's all He's ever done. Everything God has ever done in the history of the universe has been good. Everything He's done in the story of your life, every bit of it has been good. But what evidence is there of that? What proof is there that this is true? Well, James says that the proof in verse number 18 is that God has made us the first fruits of His creatures. Again, James is just 
slipping into his Judaism. He can't help it. You know how it is if you ever travel outside of the South. People look at you or listen to you talk and say, where are you from? Well, James is a Jew. He's writing to Jewish people. And it just his Jewish accent comes out on him. He talks about the first fruits of we being the first fruits of his creatures. Now, what the first fruits refers to is an offering they had in the Old Testament. You know probably that in the Old Testament, the believers, they were called and required to give a portion of everything that they had to the Lord. All the crops they harvested and all that stuff, they gave part of that to the Lord. So every year as their crops would start to come in in the harvest, they would go into the temple or the tabernacle and they would present the first fruits that they had collected as a way to say, this is the first of what's coming, but as the crop comes in fully, there will be more offerings to come. So James says that you and I today, as God's people, we are the first fruits of the creatures of God. Say, what in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. It means, as you know, that our world has been wrecked and ravaged by sin. That there is no person here in this place today or anywhere in this world that has not fallen prey to the lures and the temptation in their heart. There's none of us that have been untouched by the pain caused by somebody else's sin. This world is a wreck and the problem is not out there. The problem is right in here. And the sin in us has affected every single element of creation and there's a curse on all of it. But that God has redeemed His people... He has saved His people in the middle of that broken creation to say, I'm going to save the rest of it. He's rescued us to say, I'm going to rescue all of it. And notice how He did it. Look at what James says. He did it, verse number 18, of His own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. So what's your will like? James told you that back in verses 14 and 15. It's not great. It's not great. It gets drawn away like a bass by shiny things that click. And it wants to go after them and it gets hooked. Our will is being away from God, but God in His grace, His will is drawn towards us to save and to show His glory. So His will was to bring us forth as the first fruits of these creatures. How? Through the word of truth. Through the message of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. Here's what James is saying. I think you put it all together. James is saying this. He says that just as, we can't even say just as one day, but just as one day God stepped out into an empty creation where there was nothing but Him and said to the emptiness of whatever was there before there was nothing, let there be light. And photons and molecules and atoms that did not exist when He said it responded to something they didn't hear Him say and the universe illuminated for the glory of God. God said... James says that one day that same God who spoke and said, let there be light, He came to where you are at in your sin. And He spoke into you with the power of the gospel and said, let there be life. And even though you were dead in your sins, you heard the command of Jesus to come out of your grave and you were brought to life. And James is saying here, if God gave you that good gift of eternal life, then every gift He gives you flows out of that first gift. It's all going to be good gifts. Why? Because the first gift is ultimately the gift of total salvation from all that junk inside of you that pulls you away from God. And if that was the gift that God gave you at the beginning, then you can trust that His purposes for you will not change. His heart towards you will not change. And He is always and only going to do you good. God is great. God is good. 
Let us thank Him for loving, sorry excuses for sinners like us. Today, as our musicians come, I think of how you need to respond to this news that God is good. I think the deep struggle of our lives many times is really to believe that God really is good. Is He good to me even when I'm bad? Friend, I want you to understand the Bible teaches you that you are much worse in your sin than you know. But that you are much more loved by the Lord Jesus Christ than maybe you could ever possibly understand. And no matter how bad you've been, there's a God who loves you and wants to give you life. And if you would come this morning, I could explain that to you. And tell you how you can receive life in Jesus. For others of you though, if you're going to be honest, you've been in situations where you find yourself over and over again lately. Being enticed by the sin inside of you. Being drawn away and lured away into sin. And you need to come and you need to say, Lord, you are good, but I'm not. And I need help. Friend, there's help in Jesus. His heart for you is for you to walk beyond that temptation. His heart for you is to be victorious over that. Then I know some of you are in situations, maybe not like those people in the book of James, but where life is hard for you right now. And you would never dare openly say God is sinning against you. But deep down inside, sometimes you've kind of wondered, is God treating me right? Is God being fair to me? Is God hurting me? He is good. He's still the same God. Still the same God who saved you. Still the same God who died for you. Still the same God who's loved you all these years. He's good. It might be good for you to come and say, Lord, help me to believe that you are good. And to give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Wherever you are in any of those places today, you can leave here today knowing God is good. And that's my invitation to you is to come and say, Lord, show me your goodness. If I can help you, I'd love to pray with you. But we're going to stand together today. And we're going to sing now. And as we sing, if you need to come, Come just as you are. Come just as you are. I promise you'll find a Savior who loves you.